Hey there, and welcome back to The Proletarian Contrarian, the podcast where we reevaluate bad films through a leftist perspective. I'm Nick. And I'm Lewis. And we went south of the border to find a cursed item to present to all of you right now, and it is called... The Mexican. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's The Mexican from 2001, directed by Gore Verbinski, starring Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, and James Gandolfini. Yeah, so it's an it's an interesting film that baffled me all the way through. Yeah, me too. I, <laughs> I had no idea uh, how or why this film was made. <laughs> um, it takes place in California, in Los Angeles, I believe, and somewhere in Mexico. Uh, just me- just the Hollywood conception of Mexico. Yeah, like just Mexico as a as a homogenous kind of. Mush zone. Yeah, I think maybe they say the town at some point, but I doubt they actually filmed in that exact town. I do have a question: who, what, who, or what is the the Mexican in the title? Like, who does that refer to? I don't think they really they don't really nail that down, do they? No, they do. It's the gun, actually. Okay, I guess. It's the, yeah, I it's guess. the name of the gun. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a dumb name for the gun, but so the the basic plot of this movie is brad pitt he's like a low-level mob enforcer or something right yeah he's some low-level criminal he he's roped into this this one last job he has to transport the mexican um gun across the border back to back to his uh, bosses in la his him and brad pitt and his girlfriend julia roberts they they break up and there's this whole like marital love lover's strife that's intertwined with brad pitt's hijinks as he as he gets into pratfall after pratfall trying to trying to secure this gun. And then it really does feel like two separate movies. Yeah, it's strange. I, I think they were going for like a rom-com vibe uh, cross with a road movie. The romantic comedy elements uh, are fairly non-existent. Uh, Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts, they're apart for the majority of the film. Yeah, they're, they don't have, they don't have many uh, scenes together at all. Even, um, just right in the beginning right at the end pretty much yeah really just their their scenes together bookend the film i was reading a little bit of why this was made or how these individual actors were attached to it and <laughs> i think brad pitt and julia roberts were just friends at this time and wanted to make a movie together they found this script uh and that and that was it honestly that's i i don't know why they picked this script because again i I can't imagine they spent more than four to five days together (laughs) on set (laughs) yeah that's that's i don't know that that makes a lot of sense given like how this movie came out um directed by gore verbinski who also directed he started he started with mouse hunt then he directed this then he directed the american adaptation of the ring and then he directed the first parts of the caribbean movie which is as bonkers a resume as we've ever had on the show. Yeah, he's a, he's a really strange director. I I don't understand his his filmography at all. No, no. Uh, he started with music videos, so he's one of those music video okay. turned film director types. Um, <laughs> one of those. Yeah, one of those. We could do a whole episode on on those types of of directors. So yeah, the the perception of the film at large, uh, what what did you dig up on this? I found a review by Christy Lemire of the Associated Press. I, I thought had some uh, some interesting uh, interesting takes on this film. So um, Christy Lemire writes, 
The Mexican is sporadically entertaining. It works when Gandolfini is on screen. When he leaves, he takes the movie with him. And if you're expecting romantic sparks between the astonishingly attractive Roberts and Pitt, forget it. They're rarely on screen together, and when they are, all they do is bicker. It makes you wish they had no scenes together at all. And later on, she says in the review, the movie wraps up with some convoluted twists and double crosses, mumbo-jumbo about fate and intersections and curses. That's pretty on point. Um, we, we had mentioned that Gandolfini is is one of the main stars in this movie and he he's great he he really does he he really does kind of command have a much more commanding presence than um than Pitt or, or Roberts and like yeah like we were saying this this movie does feel like two two disparate plots grafted together kind of intertwined at both ends and then the the, the two threads are loose in the middle and um it, it's it, it really is jarring when they cut from James Gandolfini and Julia Roberts talking in a car about relationships and, and love and life. And then it smashes back to Brad Pitt, like peeing himself in Mexico or something. <laughs> yeah. And even just like his, his acting style is so different than their acting style in this film yes, until yes. you get him and Julia Roberts together. And like Christy Lemire said, the bickering, I mean, mm. that that's some of the worst stuff honestly, in this film is the dialogue between Julia Roberts and yes. Brad Pitt. It's very, their relationship is very forced or their yes. the conception of a relationship. Um, they, they constantly talk about going to like group couples therapy and Julia Roberts throughout really her character just comes across as, as this, this a stereotype, you know, nagging girlfriend, mm-hmm. um, Brad Pitt. I guess you're supposed to sympathize with him. I, I don't oh know God. why. I, I will say um, he he does do one good thing because he's a fucking fail son and we need one in all of our movies apparently because <laughs> he's he is just so incompetent. He they're they're trying to do that that hack thing where it's like a stock character, you know, like smarmy and kind of lazy and 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 lackadaisical, but like a charming, handsome, roguish guy, and it, it does not come across because he's just a lazy asshole like a lazy useless fuck and he's not charming and and his attempts to be charming are not that so we don't really care we don't really care about him we don't really care about him and his relationship with julia roberts and and because of that all of the better dialogue between gandolfini and roberts rings that much more hollow because there's there's nothing beneath it yeah it's a shame it really is the the thrust of this movie um their relationship I would say even more so than the stupid gun plot, honestly, or that's <laughs> the film that Gore Verbinski and the screenwriter were trying to make at least, um, again, really trying to make some kind of romantic comedy, but failing, uh, at every turn, uh, the road movie elements, uh, yeah, not great either. The road, the road movie elements are baffling because, um, so, so much of the, the driving, the the on the road parts are are Brad Pitt uh, driving from the U.S. border to this podunk town where he's supposed to be picking up the gun, back to the border, back to the town because he forgets a passport, then back to the border to pick up Julia Roberts again, and then back to the town to like have a showdown. He just goes back and forth between <laughs> two locations. He doesn't really like go on this this big epic drive, you know. Yeah, no, that was the, the, I think the point of the movie that I, I'd watched it in two nights and two different sittings, and I <laughs> believe I stopped when he forgot his passport, 
and I looked at my TV and I saw there were 40 more minutes and I almost had to text you and say, we can't do this movie because I can't sit through another 40 fucking minutes of or what was already, I think, an hour 20. This this movie is is two hours long. Uh, yeah. And I, I would say about 40 to 50 minutes too long. Yeah, that um, the length really, really bothered me, too, because at first it was it felt kind of it felt kind of zippy and like it was moving along and stuff was happening in the first like 15 or 20 minutes. I'm like, okay, this won't be so bad, but that it, it, then it really does drag and it drags because like I said, Brad Pitt spends, I don't know, a good half hour of the running time driving between two locations, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, um, the, the movie did not need, need to be this long and more movies in general, more modern movies should be reduced by a good third of their running time and they'd be better for it. Hot take folks. Hot a take, take, but a true take. <laughs> but true. No, I agree. Um, so I guess we have just focused on some of the weaker elements of the film there. <laughs> we're, so, we're, we're raring at the bit. We're chomping at the bit to get to the hateful con- content. <laughs> so I guess maybe we should explain a little bit more of some of the character dynamics before we get into hateful content uh, specifically. Uh, sure, there's sure. really only one point of hateful content in this movie uh, shocker it's not that it's racist <laughs> no yeah the 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 latinx characters and then the mexican characters were presented fairly neutrally there were no like great performances but it was whatever there were not stereotypes for the most part yeah that was shocking to me so the three main characters of the film are brad pitt's low-level uh criminal named jerry Julia Roberts plays his girlfriend Samantha or Sam as she referred as she's referred to throughout the film and then James Gandolfini plays a hitman named Leroy. Leroy is sent to protect Samantha from other hitmen because she's yeah. supposed to be uh, she's 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 collateral so to make sure that to make sure that Jerry holds up his end of the bargain and it's kind of like oh i'll protect you but you know i'll 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 take you out if jerry tries any funny business right exactly so they're going to las vegas julia roberts and gandolfini are heading to vegas cuz that's where uh samantha was headed to become a waitress midway through the film there's a scene in a diner where gandolfini's character leroy looks at this guy who's sitting at the bar and, and I, I will say the guy in the bar is not wearing a members only jacket. <laughs> it's a deep cut for you uh, Sopranos fans out there. <laughs> and we find out that his character of Leroy is actually gay, um, mm-hmm. that he is interested in that that character who we, we later uh, learn his name is Frank and he's a postal worker. Julia Roberts, Gandolfini and this other guy named Frank, they they go on to Vegas and from there, it's surprising again how well they handle this this character. Yeah, um, especially given the time period for this movie, two thousand one, showing a gay hitman be attracted to another guy and the other guy reciprocating. It was it was pretty pretty sensitive that initially it was it was just kind of matter of fact. It was oh this guy is attracted to this other person and. The, the thrust of that revelation wasn't 
he's gay and that's weird. The thrust of that revelation was he's human despite being a hitman and he has sensitive, he, he has feelings, he has human connection that Julia Roberts can kind of dig into and, and connect to him on that level. So it, I was kind of really shocked by like how, how matter of fact and normal um, his sexuality was presented as you were saying. Right. And the relationship as short as it is between Leroy and Frank is a more healthy relationship than, <laughs> yes. than Samantha and Jerry. Much um, more healthy, much healthier. Yeah. Now where we get into the hateful content section of it is there is another hitman uh, who is unnamed until this later twist, which maybe we'll talk about. Who knows? Um, fuck, the, fuck the twist. <laughs> fuck the twist. It's stupid. Um, there's another hitman who's been who's been on their tail since uh, L.A. Who actually Gandolfini had shot. We thought was dead, but he comes out of nowhere. He was wearing a bulletproof vest. Although I thought he shot was shot in the head, but I guess I. Who knows? It was Who it cares? was a quick Who and cares? it was a shitty scene. But yeah, so this hitman character at one point breaks into the hotel room of Samantha, Leroy, and Frank. It's an adjoining room. Uh, Frank is taking a shower. Leroy and Samantha are in a diner. They're having this conversation uh, about love and how Leroy never thought he'd be loved by someone because of his past and but Frank is actually a, a, accepting of his his profession or some aspects of his life it's and again that's that's pretty pretty damn notable for this time period that he he wasn't afraid of a relationship because he's gay or anything and there there was no like oh I, I'm a monster because of that blah, blah blah he was afraid of a relationship because of his profession and it him being homosexual was just beside the fact and not something I really expected from a 2001 movie. Yeah. It's, it, it's shocking in the, in the best way possible, really. Um, until, until Frank, the love interest of Gandolfini's character gets killed by the other hitman. Um, he throws him out of a window, makes it look like a suicide, um, so after Leroy Gandolfini is pouring his heart out to Samantha about, you know, he might get a second chance in life to love again and all this, uh, he is, his, his love interest, Frank, is, is killed. Um, I think it's a perfect example of the idea of fridging, which generally happens in media to female characters, although there is a storied history of both in cinema and TV gay characters uh, being killed, especially after uh, some kind of, you know, positive scene uh, with regards to our relationship. Um, most uh, most notable may be in Buffy. Spoiler for any of you out there who care about spoilers. We don't here at ProCon, but I guess <laughs> other people do. Spoilers are consumer corporate culture uh, nonsense. <laughs> but, you know, there's the Willow and Tara uh lesbian relationship in Buffy and then and then Tara is is murdered by the the geeks who are the big bad of of that season of Buffy um right I that that's kind of more of that 2001 homophobic um content that I was expecting the and and, and it it did it didn't let me down with my expectations um the the fridging of queer characters is is a very uh common thing um 
especially in relation when, when contrasted with a, a quote unquote normal straight um, relationship in the same piece of media. Yeah. So uh, it happens here. And um, I think maybe we should explain also, um, since we use the term fridging, kind of what that means and where that came from. Um, it actually started in comic books in 1999, so only two years before this. Um, Gail Simone, a uh, famous comic book uh, writer, um, she had coined the term uh, women in refrigerators, which was a reference to a 1999 uh, Green Lantern comic by Ron mm. Mars, where Green Lantern's girlfriend is killed and stuffed in a fridge, uh, really only to advance the plot and, you know, the characterization of, of Green Lantern. Um, so she made a website or someone made a website using the the phrase she coined called women refrigerators to kind of catalog all those instances of of what is now colloquially known as fridging yeah basically the concept of taking um a a token love interest um or i i I would say that the the phrase can be expanded to um include queer characters that are that are related to the to the straight main character and killing them off as a plot device um introducing them and then killing them off as a plot device strictly to to further some characterization maybe to show that the bad guy is so evil or to show that the the good guy um has has the proper motivation but um yeah that that's what we mean by fridging and its inclusion here is uh very much in keeping with that tradition yeah uh it sucks folks uh wish it didn't happen i mean it would make this film better but at the same time can't really polish a turd we can't polish a turd but we can pick out the little specks of undigested food to find out what we did like about it oh yeah that's right we, we <laughs> talk about things we like in films uh yeah that are crappy yeah. right yeah um and we and we come up with really disgusting and colorful metaphors to to do that um so one of the things <laughs> one of the things that we liked about the film um you had originally wrote this and i do agree is there's a nice long opening shot of a traffic light above an LA street intersection. Some of the opening credits uh, flash by. It sets up, um, oh, why is Jerry indebted to the mob? Oh, well, we hear through the diegetic ambient noise that's happening below the street light. Um, he gets in a car accident. He sends uh, he sends a mob boss to jail, and that's why he gets wrapped up, and he, that's why he always owes all these people favors. Uh, it was kind of a kind of a neat, efficient way of setting up everything in a minute without even showing it. Mm-hmm. I will say that it took me a really long time to put together, oh, that crash you hear is the crash that puts Jerry into this, this criminal syndicate or it wraps right. him up in this criminal syndicate. It's casually mentioned later that, yeah, so Jerry was just cruising down the Sunset Strip, I think, and he, he hits into... Uh, Gene Hackman's character, uh, Mr. Margulies's car, and uh, when the cops come to do an accident report, they notice that there's a live human being uh, tied up in the back of Mr. Margulies's car. So Mr. Margulies, Gene Hackman, goes to jail, and uh, Jerry gets wrapped up in his criminal syndicate uh, to pay him back, ostensibly, uh, for right. that transgression. And side note, Gene Hackman's also in this movie for five minutes <laughs> yeah he's at the end um 
the the Mr. Marley's character is only in jail for like five years. It's the end of his stint. Uh, right. And then he just pops up and just tells this utterly ridiculous story oh about about the gun. <laughs> he like was in jail with some some Mexican kid who's a descendant of the gunsmith. Yeah. It's it's like a it's like a Rashomon thing, like t- telling the same story over and over, but revealing the truth with each subsequent one. And it's it's kind of a neat idea, like the idea of a cursed gun that that only kills certain people in certain situations just because of happenstance. But um, it's really poorly handled. Yeah, it's uh, it's really dumb. Just <laughs> every plot detail, uh, every new plot detail that we get about the gun and how it. A lot of the stuff also parallels stuff in the main story, uh, especially the ending. Yeah. Um, really ham-fistedly. Very ham-fistedly. But, but back to stuff we like about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say there's a bunch of, just one thing that I didn't like. There were a, a lot of traffic light motifs. Like there were just a lot of shots of traffic lights throughout the film. Which was baffling. It made no sense whatsoever. And what what really struck me is that they had another motif that would have worked much better, that of like a crossroads, because they kept showing the same same couple crossroads over and over. That's a simple, obvious road motif, and it works better for what whatever much of a plot there was in this movie, and they didn't take that one, so I don't know. And that kind of ties into something that I did like about the film. Um, <laughs> things that they could have done, that they tried to do, uh, just they did it poorly, they try to and at some point succeeded to create their own unique criminal underworld in this film Uh, it has the usual archetypes you know mob boss mob enforcers with the the leroy hitman character and the other hitman character um mid-level manager capo types right and you're saying and you're saying you think they did a decent job at establishing that kind of mythology mythos yeah the skeleton of it yeah right yeah you know that's about it gandolfini is really the only one who brings it to life in any way um but i mean yeah they're, they're, it's not the worst like setup for for mob characters because that talk about hacky that's like one of the that's one of the easiest ways to just fuck up a script and, and rely really hard on dumb stereotypes and shit and i do think Gene Hackman's character, Mr. Margulies, and of course, uh, Gandolfini's Leroy, like they, they were probably the most, they felt the most authentic in the film. Like when people talked about the reputations these characters had, I was wrapped up in that and I thought, okay, yeah, this Leroy guy, he's fucking crazy. They say something about like him eating his mother's kidney. And I thought that was like a funny little beat. And they also said, like, he, Brad Pitt was talking about him. He's like, yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't care if this guy, like, covers himself in gasoline and lights matches, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, I mean, for the Mr. Margulies character, I think Gene Hackman is is good casting, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, given mm-hmm. um, his previous roles in, in gangster or gangster-esque films, such as, like, you know, The French Connection. Um, and Superman. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, yeah, they um, like 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 I was saying, basically, mob movies are really easy to just do incompetently because they're 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 so they're so cliche at this point. But this movie, of all the ways this movie failed, uh, the mob depiction of like 
organized crime was not one of them. So kudos to kudos to the Mexican for that. Um, kudos. Another thing, another thing that they didn't do poorly that would have been very easy to do poorly was um, depict the Mexican characters uh, in a racist way. We kind of did touch on this earlier. N- none of the Mexican characters really stood out all that much. That they, they were all kind of uh, background background characters, but none of them were ridiculous stereotypes that I would have expected from a 2001 uh, movie like this. Yeah, actually, all the Mexican characters were cool and smart, <laughs> unlike yeah. Brad Pitt and yes. J.K. Simmons, who were the dumbest fucking white people, the dumbest fucking gringos in the world. Oh, um, yeah, J- J.K. Simmons is in this too, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I just keep actors. thinking we've mentioned them. Uh, yeah, J.K. Simmons oh. plays... I guess he's like Jerry's handler, I guess. Yeah, like his yeah, his yeah. yeah, his mob handler. He gives him like his jobs and he's the go between between mm-hmm. uh Bob Balaban's character, Bernie Naiman, who I guess is like one of Margulies' capos, I guess. But uh yeah, so Brad Pitt and and J.K. Simmons are definitely the dumbest uh people <laughs> in the movie. Uh, there's this one great yep. scene where when they both get to Mexico, two separate instances, maybe 30 minutes of uh, actual yes. runtime <laughs> apart, um, they get to the airport in Mexico and they get to the, the counter for their rent-a-car and uh, they're like, oh, here's your car. It's like a Chevy or something. And Brad Pitt's like, oh, you know, I really wanted something... Uh, more authentic, more Mexican. More, more Mexicano, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, yes, of course, sir. Have you uh, have you heard of the El Camino? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, El Camino. <laughs> like, and but then, then the same makes, thing he happens. He makes fun of him in Spanish. <laughs> yeah, and then the, but then the same thing happens with J.K. Simmons. He comes yeah. down, he says the exact same thing. Uh, and and he's given another El Camino, and it's it's a it's a somewhat funny. There's like five or six people just like waiting to give them like these kind of tricked out looking El Caminos mm-hmm. that are just they don't, they're not even they're like not associated with an actual like rent a rent a car company. They're just like yeah. these dudes who have El Caminos who just want to make a few bucks on like dumbass gringos. Hell yeah, good for them. Yeah, that's um, Praxis. Yeah, it's 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 ripping off ripping off um, tourists and, and cultural imperialists is uh, Praxis. Hell yeah. Um, what else do we like? Uh, oh yeah, the um, Bob Balaban's character, Bernie Nyman, Nyman is he like like Lewis was saying he's he's the capo that Brad Pitt is indebted to. He's he's basically the main antagonist of this film. He's the one that's that's hounding Jerry and Sam. Um, in the end. When there's the showdown, Samantha is the one that kills Bernie, not not Jerry, because Jerry's a fuck up and can't do anything. <laughs> um, but it's it's cool that she has some agency. Um, she Sam's character do, does doesn't deserve to be with Jerry at all, but it it's neat that she gets the final kill. I guess. Yeah, she gets pissed because when they meet up again and they don't actually show this part, but Jerry explains everything that happened to him to Samantha. And the the one thing she picks up on is something that uh, Bernie, Bob Balaban, says to Jerry before he sends off off to Mexico. He's like, Jerry, do you like uh, sex and travel? (laughs) And and Samantha like gets pissed that 
he says that to yeah. Jerry because they're in a relationship. She's like, who would say that to a man in a relationship? Yeah. Um, so then when, when she has a gun pointed at, at Bernie during your classic, you know, Mexican standoff scene, everybody has guns pointed at each other's heads. Um, she says, do you like sex and travel, Bernie? And he's like, yes, I do. And then she just shoots him right in the neck and kills him. She's like, wrong answer, motherfucker, and shoots him. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, that scene was good. It, yeah. You know, it's it's a serviceable Mexican standoff scene. It had some weight behind it. It was, it was somewhat earned. Um, the, the dynamics between the people, the people involved in the standoff. Yeah, and also um, we had mentioned there were these scenes, these flashback scenes where they explain like the curse and the gun. Uh, the gun usually when it goes off, like most of the time it like kills whoever's firing it. Um, so in that moment you were supposed to think, oh no, is she going to kill Bernie or is she going to die? And then she, she pulls the trigger and nothing really, you know, the gun goes off, but he's still standing and she's fine. And then he like has a turtleneck on and he pulls it down and there's this giant bullet (laughs) hole and like, he then like smoke comes out of his mouth. Um, that was pretty well done. I actually thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. And it's cool because, um, the wedding ring of the bride and the the gunsmith's uh, apprentice, who were who were who were star-crossed lovers and who who were brought to tragedy through this gun and the the botched marriage of the of the bride to to the gunsmith's uh, superior, um, the wedding ring falls out of the gun and then that's what Brad Pitt uses to propose to to Julia Roberts and that that was neat it was it was a cool little reveal yeah again unearned Samantha <laughs> is better than Jerry in every way shape and form um i do think one thing that this film uh portrays accurately or pretty close to accurately is um an abusive relationship now um yeah yeah i don't think that's what the uh screenwriter was going for i thought i'm sure he just was (laughs) like i just got out of a relationship and my girlfriend was a bitch i'm sure that's what was going through his head um but honestly jerry is just just a total abuser um Mm -hmm. you know a lot of emotional abuse um a lot of gaslighting he's always like you know making samantha's character uh just you know question uh everything she says or or does um there's one scene where jerry leroy and samantha are in a car and samantha and and Samantha and Jerry are arguing with Leroy in the middle and Samantha says like this one word that sets uh, Jerry well, off. What Jerry says they're, they're having the argument and he's like, if, if I hear one more word for you, then I'm, I'm going to crash this goddamn car right now. And she, she says some word like some, some dumb, like name of, I don't know. I don't even know. So I'm like, it was like man. a, it was like a fabric. It was like a name of a fabric. I don't remember what it was yeah. though. He's like, oh, cashmere or something. And then he's like, all right. And he pulls over and he's about to crash the goddamn car to kill all three of them. Yeah. And that just seems like classic abuser behavior. Um, (laughs) It is. And and I think the film portrays that accurately. But again, I'm sure that the screenwriter thought that was a funny scene. Unintentionally, but accurately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Contrasted with that is is a. Like, like we were saying earlier, um, a good character that we actually enjoyed quite a bit, uh, James Gandolfini, his character Leroy, who, in a shocking twist, we find out he is not Leroy. The other mob enforcer that kills Frank, James Gandolfini's uh, love interest, he's the real Leroy. 
whereas Gandolfini had been, his, his real character was Winston, and he had been angling to set up Sam and Jerry, um, but of course Jerry manages to kill him. The one thing that he manages to do correctly in this movie, he kills the best character, which is kind of kind of a good summation of why Jerry sucks. But yeah, um, like, we were, like we were alluding to earlier, um, early aughts portrayal of a gay character that isn't extremely problematic and um, whose, whose sexuality is just a, a part of his characterization rather than the driving force of his characterization. Pretty uncommon and pretty cool. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting to contrast it. I, I just like I thought of this as I was watching the film. I was like, what other like contemporaneous films or somewhat contemporaneous films mm-hmm. have gay characters, especially like genre films like this, crime films and such. And I, I like immediately went to the two thousand five film Be Cool, which is the sequel to Get Shorty, which was made in the nineties. I think they're based on Elmer Leonard um books, actually. Huh. Interesting. Um so The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, plays this bodyguard named Elliot, I believe, and he's he's gay. But the majority of the film is making fun of the fact that he's gay. Like there's characters who are always just like chiding him throughout the film for being gay. And, um, and they probably played up the whole, Oh, you're so huge and buff, but you're gay. That's weird. Yes, they did. I I specifically remember this and I haven't seen this movie since 2005, (laughs) but there's a scene where he like, he's about to beat these guys up in a parking lot because they were making fun of him and he pulls out like an aluminum bat i think it's like pink even from his oh, trunk yeah, and they're like course. oh of course you'd have a a pink aluminum bat you wouldn't even have a wooden bat and like then he beats them up and to the the point of death basically good but, like, praxis. <laughs> yeah it's total praxis but like he's always the punchline even at the end of the movie i think he becomes like uh, a TV sensation and he's like dressed really flamboyantly like and it's yeah. just always a punchline because he's the rock because he's this big guy and of course he wouldn't be gay so I thought it was interesting in my mind just like wow four years earlier they did this pretty well that that was very common for the early aughts and even the late aughts hell even now but um <laughs> yeah my, my <laughs> even now but I, I guess what I was getting at is um late 90s, early aughts was kind of when um, homosexuality and and depictions of such in media was starting to become more normalized to a degree, or at least become more common, if not normalized. A a lot of growing pains are visible from media of that era. So for for such a relatively early depiction, kind of neat, such a relatively early positive depiction, kind of neat. And sticking with with the Gandolfini character, (laughs) another thing that I I appreciated, he, he... when he's talking to Julia Roberts and she, she's pouring her heart out to him about her relationship and she mentions a couple's therapy, he has this line and he goes, he's like, yeah, hey, I don't, I, I can't even attempt a Gandolfini, a Gandolfini accent, but he's like, I don't put much stock in these weird counts, weirdo counselor types. All they do is sit around in bare feet and smoke joints, which, <laughs> which, which I interpreted as this, they get Dr. Melfi from Sopranos, but um, probably was, I, I don't know. I, I could see a screenwriter really, really, having that in mind when they when they put that in yeah i bet it was i mean sopranos was probably the most popular tv show at that time it'd been on the air for a few years before that so yeah yeah, i thought it was i thought i thought um because i i remember writing that line down as well in my notes and i was like oh shit this is totally a sopranos reference (laughs) and uh another character um 
Bob Bellman's, um, I, I guess like his bodyguard, like his mob, his mob capo or whatever. He's this bleach blonde um, guy with a goatee, and he kind of looks like a grown up AJ Soprano, but I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, that guy who who just disappears. He kind of he appears for a few scenes and kind of drops out of the film. Kind of like J.K. Simmons actually, but whatever. Yeah, and J.K. Simmons, it's, it's he's actually a pretty fun character. He's yeah, kind of yeah. like just just total like normie like uh I, I think he's like a he's like a small business owner i forget exactly but there's a lot of scenes mm. of him like in his office like dicking around basically yeah talking um, on the phone yeah talking on the phone and i i don't know i thought like they did a good job of like his clothing and his he has like this really terrible like wig comb yeah. over <laughs> yeah, haircut um pretty, pretty great comb over wig haircut <laughs> that's what i meant to say yeah my apologies uh the music I, I guess another thing about this movie the music was whatever it was serviceable there were there were a couple uh licensed songs that were in this movie one of which was safety dance and that was kind of a fun scene <laughs> hell <laughs> yeah man without hats yeah it was, it was um sam uh leroy slash winston and Frank in a hotel room in Vegas, just like totally jamming out to, to, to safety dance. And it was charming. Yeah, it was like this really quick cut. It just cuts to like this window of a hotel room overlooking like the strip in Las Vegas. And yeah. there's also a mirror that's a good maybe third of the screen. And then Sam's arm comes out from what is a closet and she has like a boa, a feather boa. Mm-hmm. And then they just start dancing yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's just a really fun scene. And I, it just adds like character to her and Frank and Leroy. And it just, I thought it was crazy just at the middle of this, this, <laughs> this fucking, this weird subplot of this, this hitman. Yeah. Where they emotionally kidnapping bond. this person. <laughs> yeah. Then emotionally bonding and then just doing this weird hotel dance scene. It actually, it, it, it came off pretty organic and, mm. And it, I, I, it was great. I mean, easily the best scene in the movie. Yeah. Um, the other best, my, my, my favorite scene of the movie was when they showed a Topo Chico sign for five seconds <laughs> on, the, on the side of a Mexican like freeway. Um, Topo Chico, for those not in the know, is um, the best brand of carbonated water that I like to drink. Hell yeah. And actually, um, if you guys want some behind the scenes pro-con gossip <laughs> here, it is uh, something I had to tell Nick to stop drinking while we were recording. Because yeah. the uh, first the first two episodes, he would just uh, <laughs> unscrew and screw the top uh, constantly. So yeah. I had to cut that out of two episodes. Well, talking a lot about movies that I barely tolerate is, is thirsty work. And um, I have elected to drink uh, still water only for these, for these episodes. So you're welcome, everyone. <laughs> uh, speaking, speaking of proper hydration, uh, this movie does feature a lot of uh, peeing scenes as well. <laughs> so much urination. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was watching the film and I actually didn't think much of it until my wife sat down and, and she was watching something else on her computer. And every time she'd look up, it seemed like she looked up at a urination scene. <laughs> and she said to me, why do they keep urinating in this film? I was like, I do, I do not know. I can't tell you. It's It's... Really, there's no there's no plot function. It's it's a plot device that's used like to to set things up. It, it just 
you could do anything else in like half those half those scenes but they're just they're really into peeing um yeah although it is relevant to um so i'm not i don't know if uh, our listeners know this actor but david crumholtz who is mm-hmm. bernard the elf in yes. the tim allen film santa claus um he um, plays and, Mr. And, the, and the tim allen film santa claus too Oh, okay. And but, but the not, third one? But not the Tim Allen film Santa Claus 3. Not the third one. Wow. Okay. No. So they, they got Martin Short, but they couldn't pay for David Krumholtz. They ignominiously dropped David Krumholtz, um, his character from the third one with no explanation. Just one of those things hmm. that franchises do sometimes. Yeah. Maybe he was shooting the Harold and Kumar films. Oh, time. yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's their yeah. friend who I think is like a tech bro. Mm. in those films mm. that's pressure. um those might be films we might do in the future so we could i, I think those are those are too well liked by and large but um we'll we'll decide this later in our in our next pro con council um, anyway <laughs> the, the pee scene back to the pee scene the pee scene so david crumholtz plays uh mr margulies's uh grandson who first gives jerry the gun the mexican mm-hmm. um and at one point uh while jerry is on a payphone talking to ted jk simmons character uh and there's all these people having a party in this mexican oh town my God, I forgot uh, they're shooting this. guns in the <laughs> air uh david Crumholtz's character is peeing against yes. a wall and then all of a sudden he falls down uh jerry goes over picks him up puts him in his car and realizes that he fell down not because he was drunk but because uh <laughs> one of the celebratory gunshots uh the bullet uh, came down and went straight into his skull and killed him. That w- that was actually kind of funny. I really like that. That was, that was, yeah, that was decent actually. I I was it was yeah it was a good moment. It was a good little beat. That scene um that scene also had another recurring element that we we appreciated. This is probably one of the last films, last big budget films, um Hollywood films to feature payphones and in the lack of cellular cell phones as um as an element inherent to the plot even everyone's uh phones in their homes were were landlines i get i guess 2001 that that wasn't too that wouldn't be too out of character that wouldn't be too weird but um much of the, the, this kind of runs into the self the, the the drama problem that a lot of movies run on or, or that some people notice some movies run on um that a lot of the drama of this movie would be erased if cell phones existed. Yeah, no, a lot of it is Jerry just can't get a hold of, of Sam. Mm-hmm. It's really a, if he yeah. was able to call her cell phone, unless James Gandolfini would have like, you know, broken in half or something. Other than that, it would have, yeah. A lot of the drama is based on not being able to communicate. Yeah. There's this one scene with a landline phone when Ted and Jerry are in their Mexican hotel and Jerry sees the cord of the the landline phone going to the bathroom <laughs> that and Ted's on the phone yeah and Ted's on the phone with Bernie talking about how Bernie wants him to whack Jerry because there's this double cross stuff going on Jerry eventually confronts Ted and Ted's like oh no I didn't I would never I I know nothing <laughs> I would never I would never oh, yeah. try and whack you and then uh, my favorite and only reference to pop culture, I think, in this movie, which <laughs> yeah, uh, I think you're right. Yeah, I think like besides I, besides Topo Cheek, well, it's not pop culture. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, if this film is really trying to be uh, a Tarantino ripoff, it 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 fails in in yep. in terms of uh, pop culture references. But 
it does this one pop culture reference is old timey enough and uh jerry says to ted he's like who are you uh colonel clink from hogan's heroes i know nothing (laughs) and in in that moment i was like who the fuck wrote this line it's so out of place i was like did fucking dennis miller write this line (laughs) i mean mean, given the awkward way it's phrased i mean it would have to be whoever did write that line they're not going to appear as a worker of note in this episode (laughs) because i don't all all of the all of the technical aspects of this movie the the script the, the cinematography the editing whatever it's all competent enough but nothing really stands out enough for for me to want to mention anything, certainly. Um, as far as I know, Lewis, you really didn't have any technical work that really stood out for you, did, did you? No, I, I really can't um, point to anybody like cinematographer or yeah. score or anything like that. Um, hey. However... <laughs> yeah, I know, I know uh, what you're going to say. <laughs> I did uh, like some performances. Mm-hmm three performances in fact only three um the most obvious being james gandolfini yep r.i.p rest, rest in peace to the big man um big Jenny. one of the great actors uh of our time and the best actor in this movie even if he gets the short shrift for sure um but then the who else <laughs> who else are you gonna say louis <laughs> The next best actor is the dog in the movie. <laughs> yes. uh, we didn't mention this, but uh, this dog uh, is is actually in the Topo Chico scene. Yeah, uh, when when Brad Pitt buys uh, a truck, it's where we see the Topo Chico billboard, mm-hmm. and uh, he he's made to buy this truck that comes with a dog, this like mangy dog. And the dog has like a, a deflated football as like a toy yeah. that he carries with him. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I really couldn't find much. I couldn't find the dog's name, but mm-hmm. I did find out that it is a Labrador retriever that they dyed brown and they gave it a haircut to make it look mangier than it was. Wow. That's some commitment to its craft. Yeah. But, you know, it had to put up with Brad Pitt pointing a gun at it like three fucking times. Yep. So... This dog is a fucking hero. Working class hero, Labrador, <laughs> lab- Labrador, if you will. Oh yeah, and then the other one. I was curious about this too, and you, you did you did find this out. Yes. There's there's a there's a young child actor in the first in the opening scene of this movie, um, <laughs> a baby, Big Tom. <laughs> Brad Pitt walks into Bernie Naiman's office. And he's like, "Oh, I'm here to see the big man. I'm here to see the boss, and oh, I'm doing my stupid job." And he tries to make the baby laugh and maybe burst into tears, which, <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> which is incredible, incredible, very realistic acting, in, in my opinion. Um, and, and as is the case for a lot of a lot of infant and baby roles, the, this role was split between two twins, uh, William and Harrison Fuller. So th- those those kids are probably, what, 18 now, just starting college. Fuck, we're old. But good job, guys. Yeah, hopefully you were paid enough. Uh, to to go to a good college. <laughs> yes. uh, so, Lewis, who would you recommend this film to? I would recommend this film to uh, people who like Coen Brother films, people who like Tarantino films, 
but you've seen all of those films. You've seen all of those films numerous times, but you got to scratch that itch somehow. So you're going to just stick with this low rent version. (laughs) If you, if you are hungover on a Sunday, like me, as we're recording this and you, (laughs) and you are enjoying the nice refreshing taste of an ice cold Topo Chico, this is, this is something to throw on that you don't really have to pay much attention to. That's true. Yeah. And, and for my part also, I would say uh, Gandolfini completionists. He he never really does a bad job, in my opinion, and he he paints a compelling character here, despite the material. Yeah, I think um, that is really it for uh, this episode, folks. So, if for any reason you find yourself watching The Mexican, you can uh, you can kind of skip around, find these these parts that we highlighted or uh or just don't watch it yeah or just or just don't don't watch it just listen to this episode and that's probably all you really need to do (laughs) all right folks we'll see you next week see you then after more than 40 films between them they are finally working together in the mexican there was a heparin tracy quality to it with the relationship the bickering in the relationship that i thought was funny and also bantering not bickering, bantering. But there was no arguing when it came to their co-star, James Gandolfini. Listen to what they did when they heard he would be in their movie. We were doing cartwheels, naked. Yeah. We were so happy. <laughs> yeah. That's a More exciting when he does that than when I do that. Or